0: You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. I was going to give you a quiz today to begin. I was going to show you a summary statement and ask you which doctrine this refers to. But then it hit me that we have an environment where we do a lot of advanced promotion. I like it. I like that, and we print in the worship folder what we 're talking about. so to give a quiz would be somewhat futile because you would know the answer right? So how about we just do an open book quiz? Can we do that here 's how Christians for for a number of years and theologians have summed up the doctrine that we're looking at today. This is the eighth week in our series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. We've been looking at core doctrines that we plant our feet on that are non-negotiable. It's been a good summer doing that. Today's doctrine is summed up in this way. While remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Now you know the answer to that. You know which doctrine this points to, but let's say it together. This points to the doctrine of the incarnation. It's in your worship folder. You've probably seen it on maybe a post or two from our church, maybe through our Twitter feed. This week, we're looking at the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, it's an aspect of Christology, which is the study of Christ. And so, in some sense, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ would fall under the umbrella of Christology, Christology is so massive it's a it's a a massive volume of work of course that we would look at things such as redemption the atonement the resurrection the incarnation as all being part of Christology and so we've chosen this very first one the the doctrine of the incarnation to kind of take a a deep dive into this morning because it's very fundamental and core to what we believe especially what we believe about Christ in fact let me just kind of give you up front where we're headed today. I want you to kind of see our take-home truth at the beginning. We'll kind of make it a deductive style of preaching this morning. Here's where we're headed. I want you to see how this is unfolded in all of our text, in all of our understanding. You'll see us coming back to this towards the end. That Also, this is what the Incarnation is all about. In a, in a very nut graph type of format, the Incarnation is really God's glory displayed and God's mission deployed. Would you read that with me? The incarnation is God's glory displayed and God's mission deployed. Now, when you hear that, you may think, well, did God not start his mission till Jesus came? No. God's been on mission since Genesis 3. All right? The gospel to all language groups. But it wasn't until Christ came that he deployed the avenue by which this redemption, this gathering of all peoples would occur. So it's no different than if the military is planning something in the war room, in the strategy conference center, but they won't deploy troops until their plans are in place. It's already kind of moving that direction, but they'll deploy troops at a certain stage of that. So the incarnation is just a beautiful uh, visible display of God's mission being deployed. And of course it's, God's glory on display. We're going to see this unfold in so many aspects today. I will take a few questions, but I won't answer them live because I've got to save some time for the end. And what I want to share with you, I think, three very relevant implications of the incarnation, all right? Three guarantees, we'll call them. And I really want to spend some time on those. So I'm going to kind of make some good tracks here uh, through our time in the Word as well as through our time in class. There will probably be moments you'll think, man, I can't get all this, so take some good snapshots of the slides behind me. Take some good notes, write so the scripture verses. you want to look into this later. But Let's talk about the doctrine of the incarnation for a bit. Two pinnacle texts about this doctrine matter to this church and to Christianity in general. John 1, especially verse 14. And then we'll go to Philippians chapter 2, and especially verses 5 through 8. Let's begin in John 1. Notice, if you would, in this singular verse... How John connects us to two important concepts, all right? You'll see these kind of surface in the verse. It's the deity of Christ as well as the humanity of Christ. Understand, church, these are two core aspects of the doctrine of the incarnation. The deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. What do we believe about them? We're going to explain that today. We'll start in John 1, verse 14. Really, the text is 1 through 18, about God's mission to the world, his creation of it, of course, and his sending of Jesus the light into the world. We're not going to go through all of that. I just want you to notice verse 14 for our purposes today, which John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says to us authoritatively, the Word became flesh. We'll just stop there and say that in the Word, the Word, he's speaking of the deity of Christ, that Jesus is god They say todd how do you draw that just from the word word well let's go back to john 1 1 in which he describes the word as being with god you're looking back up there with me and as the word being god do you see that and this is the word logos let me pause here and just share with you an interesting bit of insight that's not related to the incarnation but i think it's quite intriguing Jesus is the Logos of God. He is the Word of God. He was with God. He was God. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. He's the creator of all things. And yet, Genesis 1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So how does this work? Well, in a very technical and theological fashion, when God spoke, He was speaking through the Son. The Word of God. The Logos of God. So Jesus is the creator as the second person of the three in one. So God created, and yet Jesus created because he's the Logos. So think about Genesis 1. When God said, let there be light, that Logos, that word, Jesus was speaking as well. Let there be light. So this has Trinitarian aspects as well, but it's clear that what he's saying is that this word, this creative One, this God, this one who was with God and was God, it's Jesus. Because it says here that word became flesh. So here he speaks to the humanity of Christ. So he's speaking of Christ's deity, that he was God, and all of his eternal and creative aspects, and yet he was man. He became flesh. In fact, it's this word flesh, it's the Greek word sarts. Later on, the Latin word carn kind of developed. And it's from this that we get the word incarnation. Or, more literally, to be enfleshed. So when we say the incarnation of God or the incarnation of Christ, we're saying the enfleshing of God. Drawn from this very word. The word became flesh. So God, deity, Became man, humanity. And then it says he pitched his tent among us. Now, yours probably says he dwelt among us. Probably says he lived among us. Most little rendering is that he pitched his tent right in the middle of us. Now, lest that just fly over your head, consider the implications of holy God clothing himself in human flesh and living right smack dab in the middle of us that should cause your heart to rejoice because that's the mission of God deployed in fact you'll notice that several times in this verse he talks about how he came unto his own his own people did not receive him but those who did receive him they have the right to become children of God so here's the mission of God no doubt Christ coming in the flesh, but when he came on mission, the Bible says that we saw his glory. So God's glory is on display even while his mission is being deployed. It's glory that's of the, as of the only Son from the Father. And this glory is full of two things, grace and truth. So Jesus Christ was the personification of two things. Listen very carefully, church. Grace and truth. He he bore witness, he displayed this is what God is like and here's why that matters. Because only when both of those are combined can our souls be saved. You see it takes the grace of God to move on our behalf and live in the middle of us, right? We had nothing we could do nothing on our own. We couldn't move to God. There was a separation from the garden forward. And yet God could not look past sin. It would be unjust to do so. So how can God be and remain just in light of our sin and yet be gracious and reach out to us? It takes the sending of himself, a God who is both, both gracious and just to be one of us, live as us, and die as a man. And in that sacrifice, that perfect, sinless, holy sacrifice, in which Jesus gave his body on the cross for us, God was eternally satisfied because it wasn't just another good person dying. It wasn't just another lamb who would cover things for a year. It was the holy, righteous son of God, the second person of the Trinity on the cross for us. That's grace and truth combined. And when grace and truth combined in that way, God, watch this, is, as Romans says, he's both just And then the justifier of those who believe. He's not looking past sin. He's just. But he can look at your sin. And say you're saved through Jesus. Amen. So when when Christ came. He was displaying grace and truth. And when people saw that. They saw the glory of God on display. And all of that was, was, was kind of lived. In the sense of. This is the mission of God. Christ here. To seek and save those who are lost. This is. John 1, his succinct and inspired understanding of Christ in his incarnation, the word being flesh, and us seeing God's glory on display and, and then being benefact, uh, bene, benefiting from his mission. Philippians echoes much of this. Paul's hand writes these verses in Philippians 2. Will you flip over there? Again, we see the concepts of deity and humanity spelled out clearly in this portion of the Bible, verses 5 through 8. Here's what Paul writes, of course, authoritatively under the Spirit's inspiration. He says, we're to have this mind among ourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting. He associates here the, the person, the New Testament person of Jesus, with the Old Testament prophetic one of the Messiah, He connects them and says, they're the same one. So Paul knew and and understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of all that God promised. He says, here's the mind that Christ Jesus had, who though he was in the form of God, and that doesn't mean form like an outline but lacking substance. It doesn't mean like, well, that's a shadow. That's just an image. It's not the real thing. The word here is the word for nature or essence. So he's saying Jesus, who in essence and in nature was God, he did not count equality. Again, that's a good word. Paul here is almost assuming Jesus is God. That's what he believes. That's what the scriptures have told. That's what Jesus said. So he says he didn't consider this equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on So suddenly in these first two phrases, Paul is clearly teaching us Jesus is God. The deity of Christ is spelled out uh, crystal clear. But look what he does next. He then goes right to the humanity of Christ. He says, he did not consider equality something to hold on to. He says, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of man. So suddenly, this one who was with God, who was God, this logos, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, he became man. He was actually born. He was an embryo, Then he grew in the womb through the birth canal. He experienced the birthing process. He was a day old, five days old, six months old. He was a one-year-old. He learned to walk. This is Jesus. He was born. The one who was with God, the one who is God, yet he became a man. This is the, this is the description of him being made flesh. And it says he was found in a human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And suddenly Paul now brings in the mission of God. Why was it necessary for Christ to come, take on human form, nature, and then die on a cross? Because God's mission was being deployed, that he would seek and save those who were lost. So do you see how in both passages a couple of things happening here? Christ's deity is clear. Christ's humanity is clear. But the mission of God is clear. And So so we say about the Incarnation then that it is the glory of God on display and the mission of God deployed in both Christ's deity, that's glory, and humanity, that's mission. We see Christ fully God and fully man, able to fully save. And that's stuff that we believe and we would say, amen. You would nod. If you're not, you should be. Right on, preacher Todd. You know, you're going to agree with that. That's doctrine. It's non-negotiable. If you were to have a meeting and vote on that, it wouldn't matter what the vote was. We're not changing. This is just truth, okay? Spelled out in the Bible. The question may be, though, how do we arrive at that apart from these two pinnacle texts? Are there specific verses and examples, and are there specific proofs that talk about Christ's deity and his humanity? If these are the core concepts of the incarnation Let's have some further proof about these two concepts. Let's do that, Kim. Let's check into class for a bit. I hope you've got your seatbelt on. We're going to make some quick tracks through a number of things that really show, and I would say, from a presuppositional standpoint, prove the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. We do believe beforehand that Christ's word is true, that God is true and just and righteous. So what he says is true and just and righteous altogether, the psalmist says. So we're going to look to that word now to say, hey, what does it say about Christ's deeds humanity? Here's four reasons, first of all, that Jesus is fully God. Let me just kind of spell these out for you briefly. I'll give you several verses to, to look up. They're not listed behind me, but you'll want to write these down. Uh, you can check back the video and audio later if you, want to, if you miss them. But this will help you really kind of put your hands around this. First of all, God called Jesus God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. These are moments, and there's just two of many, in which God refers to the Son as God. Hebrews 1.8, he says explicitly this, that I have said of my Son, your throne, O God, is established forever. We have a song we sing about that very song. In Isaiah 9.6, which I think is one of my favorites, it's a prophecy about the coming virgin birth of Christ. And in there, the prophet says that a, a son will be given... And you will call him, and he lists some names. You've heard him in the Hallelujah course, haven't you? Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. And then he calls him the Everlasting Father. But I thought it was a Son that was being given. Exactly. More mystery, amen? But we see God calling Jesus God. Furthermore, Jesus accepts this affirmation couple of scriptures for you. Matthew 26 before Caiaphas who asks him who do you say that you are and are you claiming to be this one from on high and you know questions along who he was and Jesus answers in this way he says I am who you say I am and I'll come soon in the clouds of glory with power. And At that moment an interesting thing happens watch this. Caiaphas tore his robe and accused Jesus Christ of blasphemy. Now listen very carefully church I'm not an apologetician. I'm not great at that. But I do like evidential um, history. And one of the best proofs that Jesus claimed to be God and was God is that Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, didn't tear his robe because Jesus claimed to be a good man. He didn't tear his robe because Jesus claimed to be another God, such as like the Roman Caesars would claim. Caiaphas tore his robe because Jesus was claiming to be the God, Yahweh. Caiaphas knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. The one with power from on high who's coming back. And Caiaphas tears his robe. He didn't believe there was a Messiah. He didn't believe God had come in the flesh. Make no mistake though, that's exactly what Jesus Christ was claiming. He was affirming and accepting what God had bestowed upon him. This title of of God, of Yahweh. He was God in the flesh. Furthermore, in John 8, verses 58 and 59, he's in a, a long discourse with the Jewish leaders. It ramps up and, and basically climaxes with Jesus saying this to Jews, which can, if you were there and you were a Jew, just, and you were an unbelieving Jew, hear this. He says, before Abraham was, now who's Abraham to a Jew? The answer is everything, okay? <laughs> he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's Yahweh. And that would light your fire if you're an unbelieving Jew. That would incense you, which is why Caiaphas was so incensed. Which is why they crucified him. Listen very carefully. You cannot logically, philosophically believe that Jesus Christ was just a good man, another good teacher. Either he was the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Or he was an egomaniac, lying, manipulative selfish person who wanted him incredible amounts of attention and would lie to get it. So to agnostics, to atheists, who want to put him on this level of like, he, he did his part. No. He didn't just do his part. He wasn't a good man in that sense. He wasn't just a good teacher. You can't read the scriptures and assume that. You have to admit, okay, he was who he said he was or he was one messed up Dude. <laughs> No one goes around claiming that. No one says this in front of the... Does that make sense, guys? So the incarnation is a, is a fundamental argument even to our, our uh, apologetics. And Jesus here, yeah, he claimed to be God in front of the politicians. Uh, he accepted God's affirmation in front of the ruling people, the priests, the religious people. He knew... He was God among us, the Word made flesh, the Logos who pitched his tent in the middle of us. He showed himself to be God through his attributes as well, which means he gave evidence that he was God by what he did. I'll just give you three examples. Matthew 28, in his Great Commission, which we are passionate about here. He says, go make disciples of all nations, And he said, I'll be with you, and then watch this phrase, until the end of the ages of the ages. Now we only have in our Bibles the phrase, the end of the age. More literally, it should be the end of the ages of the ages, which is how we translate forever. So Jesus, on the Mount of Olives, was claiming to be able to send and be with these people forever. Only God has omnipresent capacity, right? Well, I guess Jesus accepted his role as God. Furthermore, in John chapter 2, he clearly knows all things. This is his first miracle. He shows up at the wedding, and he doesn't deliver his best wine first. He waits until they're frustrated, knowing that at the end, when he delivers the goods, they'll, be, they'll realize, wow, who is this person? In fact, John 2.11 says that this was the first of his signs to show his glory. How did Jesus know all that ahead of time? He's omniscient. Only God is omniscient. But Jesus was omniscient. Jesus is God. My favorite one though is Christ's ability and willingness and readiness to forgive sins. Often he would say to someone who was being healed, I'm not just fixing your legs, take up your bed and walk. He would say your sins are forgiven and only God can forgive sins and yet Jesus readily with power forgave sins. So by attribution, by acceptance, by affirmation, we clearly see this thread. Jesus is fully God. And lastly, he's given names of God. Revelation twenty two thirteen 13 is just one example, as well as the hundreds of times you see the word Lord in the Bible ascribed to Jesus, both in the Adonai form as well as in the Yahweh form, which is all capital letters in your Bible, L-O-R-D. In hundreds of those examples, many of them refer to Jesus Christ. Revelation twenty two thirteen 13 is one of the best in which Jesus Christ is personally speaking. And he says, Behold, I'm coming soon. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Those were titles given to God in the Old Testament. And here Jesus now personally speaking, claiming those titles. You see, folks, the Bible clearly, undeniably speaks to us and settles this issue. Jesus is fully God Does it speak as well to the issue of Jesus being fully man? It does. Here's four reasons why I would say that Jesus is also fully man. First of all, he was born with human faculties. Just read Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus Christ. You can read uh, Luke chapter 1 as well about the pregnancy of Mary. You can read that in Matthew as well. Joseph's situation. The whole Christmas story shows us that Jesus Christ was actually Born, There's a date in history. There's not just biblical evidence. There's historical evidence from first century historians like Josephus and others who attest to the birth of a man named Jesus, a a baby. An actual historical king tried to kill him. His name was Herod. So there's evidential time and space reality that says, wow, God came in flesh, yes, and that was called, his name was Jesus, he was born. So that's pretty human, wouldn't you say? Humans are actually born. Jesus was born. He had human faculties. He grew in all facets of humanity. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we see Christ being born. We see Christ growing in all facets and aspects of humanity. And then we see that he was known as a normal human. This is what I think one of the, the most poignant aspects of Christ's humanity. If you read in Matthew chapter 13, I think the verses specifically would be right around 53 to 58 He's telling uh, about the kingdom of God through parables, and he's also doing many mighty works. After both of those, some are asking this, like, hey, who is this guy? And they're asking questions like, wasn't this Mary's, uh, Joseph's son, wasn't? And and so they're not, watch this, church, let me explain this well. They're not asking and saying, wow, yep, you're God among us. Now, you may find this startling that a preacher would say this to you. Here's what they're actually saying. They're saying, how can this normal guy talk and act this way? In fact, I would say to you, most people, when they saw Jesus, historical, evidential, time and space Jesus, they thought, "This is a normal guy. The New Testament bears that out. The reactions to him when, when he would, uh, in his claims and his actions, were like, hey, how, what's going on with you? You're one of us, we thought. In fact, when Peter confessed, who he was, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, only heaven could have revealed this to you. So I want you to know, again, from an apologetics point of view, one of the best evidences we have that Jesus was fully human is the fact that that's how everyone pretty much saw him. His reputation was as a normal person, being born, birthdays, uh, all the you know, one-year-old, three-year-old, the five-year-old, the The emotions and experiences that go with that. Yet sinless, but fully human. Growing up, getting lost at, what, 12 or 13 in the temple? Surprising his parents with incredibly deep answers theologically and confounding those in the temple? At that point he says, Did you not know I should be about my father's business? And he clearly asserts his deity there while clearly displaying his humanity because he belonged to, to Mary and Joseph. So there's this whole thing going on here in which the life of Jesus is clearly known as a a normal human life. And of course, lastly, he physically suffered and died. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter affirms that Jesus did this in the flesh. That's the three words mentioned. And so when the disciples were in the garden, it wasn't an image of, of the Christ that they came to arrest. Did you know that? They handcuffed a real person. They put chains around the neck and arms and hands and feet of an actual human being. They took him off to be tried, and actual historical people like Pilate and like Herod encountered Jesus, and soldiers actually whipped the back of a human being named Jesus. His back actually bled. His flesh actually was ripped off. There were real real nails piercing his wrist. There was actual thorns that were pressed upon his physical brow, and this physical person was known as Jesus in the first century, actually physically died on a cross from suffocation in the course of crucifixion. They watched him. Hundreds of witnesses watched a real, live person be crucified. Paul would refer to this later as the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ. And the actual, visible, bodily suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best evidences that he's truly God. Because after all of that physical suffering and death, they went to a real tomb by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. They put his real body in this real tomb. Three days later, real soldiers didn't know where the body had really gone. But for 40 days from that point forward, Jesus showed up in real places, to over 500 real people, really proving he was alive. And really proving God had come in the flesh. So if you ever wonder, is Jesus really human? Oh, he's fully human. Here's four reasons why. So there's four reasons we would say, Jesus is fully God, and there's four we'd say, here's why he's fully man. Are there more? Yes. And are there more scriptures? Yes. These are four that I just want to kind of lay out before you. Hope you've taken a picture of them, heard the verses. I want you to dig into those, talk about them. This is where we stand doctrinally, that Jesus is fully God, that Jesus is fully man. And in these two natures in one person, we see the glory of God displayed and the mission of God deployed. Now, some of you may not be word people. You may be uh, picture learners. Maybe you're more of a visual type. Here's a graph, or maybe I should call it a chart, that would picture for you how we illustrate the incarnation of Christ and his two natures in one person. Notice you have the Trinitarian, three in one here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being. Here you have the person of Christ, and yet he's got a divine nature as the Son of God, and yet he's got a human nature as the Son of Man. It's a title given to him Many times in the New Testament. We call this, uh, and there's, a, there's not a great word here. I don't want to use the word merger. I don't want to use the word combination, but I've got to because of just lack of human ability to think of a word, okay? We call this the hypostatic union. That's just a $10 word for two natures in one flesh. It's a word that's been around for a long time. It's where we land on the doctrine of the incarnation. We believe that two natures in one flesh, the hypostatic union, the the merging, the combining, the, the two natures, complete, distinct, and yet in one person. That's Jesus Christ. He was fully God, fully man, deity, humanity, hypostatic union. This, kind of, this graph, in a, in, some, in, in a good way, represents that, okay? Now this graph, this illustration, this chart, what you've seen about what we believe, these four things under deity and humanity, are not things that we just kind of thought of. And you know that. I mean, we're, we're not like a church trying to invent our own doctrine, we never have, never will. We stand on doctrine that's been passed down to us. Uh, from when, Todd? I'm glad you asked that. Here's a long line of people who have embraced the doctrine of the Incarnation. It began with the Apostles' Doctrine. I didn't say the Apostles' Creed. That's 150 years after the Apostles, by the way. But the Apostles' Doctrine, Paul says in Ephesians, is the foundation of the church what the apostles and prophets gave us through the Spirit's inspiration, that lays a groundwork for the church. Those are big A apostles. They're not around today, okay? It's an office then. It was authoritative. So here's the apostles' doctrine, the Nicene Creed in the 4th century. Most of the battles for the incarnation of Christ and the deity of Christ to that situation were fought in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. There's a pretty big gap in the, I don't know, 5th, 6th century up to about the 17th and any kind of battles for this. Um, but in those third, fourth, fifth centuries, uh, a lot of battles went on for the for the incarnation, the full deity, and full humanity of Christ. Many of our creeds and confessions address those battles. Many of our church heroes, such as Athanasius, were involved in these kinds of battles. So the Nicene Creed addresses this. The Chalcedonian Creed addresses this. It's one of the best creeds. You should Google it. One of the best creeds that deals with Christ and all of his full humanity and full deity. Of course, later 17th century, Westminster Confession, um, the Catechism that roots from that, of course. And then currently, the Ligonier Statement on Christology from our own century. And I appreciate the the work of the folks at Ligonier and their willingness willingness to continue grounding our feet in solid doctrine. In fact, we gave you this Statement on Christology last Christmas. Do you recall this simple white, I don't want to call it a brochure, This is the statement on Christology. It's called the Word made flesh. It's beautiful. The actual creed, we'll call it, or the statement is only this long. Let me show it to you. It's only this long. A few stanzas. It's not that long. The rest of the publication is really a set of affirmations and denials. What we do believe about Christ and His incarnation, His deity and humanity, and what we don't believe, and it addresses current-day heresies and... Long time held false beliefs. If you want a copy, I'm sure we have some left. Or You can email our communication director, Tanner. He'll make sure you get one. I, I love these kind of documents. And you think this is like, well, you know, we'll just save that and maybe we'll read it. But don't forget, folks back in the 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, they wrote things out. And they probably thought no one would ever read them either. Now today we look back at that and we ground our feet in things that people wrote down and said, this is what we believe. I would encourage you to pick up one of these if you have a legacy box at home or a treasure chest or something at home, you store things for your kids later, put this in there. And when you're dead and gone and your grandkids are old, maybe one of your kids' kids' kids would say, so this is what Papa believed. This is where he stood. And you can laugh now about that. But don't forget, one day the 31st century is going to look back and say, here's what 21st century Christians said about Christ. <laughs> Unless the Lord comes back. Amen? But don't forget, Paul was sure Christ was coming back in his time frame. 20 centuries later, we're still waiting. Now, God's not falling asleep. I'm getting off track. We'll, we'll cover that later. <laughs> forget that. I'm just saying, pick one of these up. We have extras. But the doctrine of his, of his incarnation and what we believe about his deity and humanity, it's, it's not something we just kind of make up. And So let's tell our people this this week. It's long-held doctrine. And for you to vary from long-held doctrine could be damning. In fact, there's at least four views that are wrong. Can I share these with you? You won't know these names. I'm not real familiar with them. You learn them in school, but you don't remember them. Someone said this morning, Todd, do you just know all that? I was like, no way. I'm not near that smart. I review. I get all week to study and read and prepare. These things, they come back. Oh, yeah, I remember talking about that. You know, you go to school. You train. You, you remember them. But, man, don't let full preachers fool you. No one just remembers all this all the time, Okay. We have to review and study too. But here's the four views that, though you may not know the name, you may have heard about how they view Christ's incarnation. First of all, Apollinarianism, I'll just make sure I get this right, they would hold that there was one person and he had a body, but he did not have a human mind. His mind was strictly the, of the divine nature. The scripture nowhere speaks of Christ operating in a way that was kind of void of his human mind. There's a clear um, understanding that he had two full and distinct natures. Another one is the idea of uh, the we call uh, historianism. The founder of this was Nestorius. Ironically, Nestorius claims in some of his writings, this is in the first few centuries, that he never actually believed what folks said he believed. He fought till the very end to try to change their minds, but apparently in some of his writings and due to some politics, he was excommunicated and So now this belief bears his name. I don't know what's true and not true in that, but it makes a good good reading. Regardless, it's the belief that um, Nestorianism, that there are two separate persons in one body. Now be careful, because we hold that there are two natures in one person. He, being in the form of God, the nature of God, took upon himself the form of a servant, the nature of a human, two natures in one flesh. But he held there were two separate people kind of like this uh, uh, schizophrenic person. I might be God for a minute, and I might be a man for a minute. (laughs) That's not a true understanding of the incarnation. Also, monophysitism, founded by a guy named Eutychus, and so it's often often called that by his name. It's what I call the Prius doctrine. In other words, they believe that it's not All God and all men. It's like both of these put together and you get some kind of hybrid version of them. So, you know, it's like this Prius look. Like, "Uh, it's not all gasoline. It's not all this. It's kind of a mixture of both. It's kind of what's going on there. It's just false. It's heresy. It's not true at all. Um, He also was a bishop in the early centuries. Disqualified and excommunicated. So you can see there are a lot of battles fought for this issue early on. One of the more recent ones, however, is Kenosis. Or kenotic theology, you may see that. And I'm going to be very blunt with you here and very transparent with you. If you have issues, talk to me, I'd love to talk with you. Uh, I can get into that pretty good, it'd be no problem, okay? But kenosis is pretty popular since about the late 1800s. It came from Germany and England. And it's especially popular in Pentecostal churches. And you're not going to see this, you know, flashed anywhere. But they would hold that, that Jesus Christ was God... Two natures in one person, yes, but not until his baptism. And they hold that Philippians 2 when it says that he did not hold equality with God something to be grasped, that he actually quit being God from the moment he was born until about his baptism. It's just heresy, it's false. Nowhere in scripture is that ever intimated. They take the word kenosis and they twist it. They make it mean what it doesn't mean. All right? It simply means that He, while being fully God, did not choose to exercise his attributes or choose to use them in a way um, at the time that was unnecessary, unfitting. He still retained them. He was still fully God and fully man. But he chose to, his his exercise of them was, was voluntary and willful. And so we would say no to kenosis, all right? These are all four types of heresies involving the incarnation. The deity of Christ as well as his humanity. So don't fall prey to these. Instead, hold true to what we do believe. Again, in succinct form, here it is. The doctrine of the incarnation that Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. He is the word made flesh. He is the Logos who is with God and is God who pitched his tent in the middle of us. Each nature is full and complete. They're distinct. Whatever one does, the other does as well. There's this, this interesting, mysterious combination of two full natures in one person. He's fully God, fully man. Each nature remains distinct, and yet Christ is only one person. So, so there you have, in somewhat of a very school-like fashion, uh, some of the basics of the doctrine of the Incarnation. We kind of took a deep dive for us, but still we're scratching the surface in this, I know it brings us back to showing what I think is really the the succinct take-home truth. When you put all that together, you realize, wow, the incarnation is God's glory displayed and God's mission deployed. You know, this stands as beautiful, it stands as majestic, this doctrine that God would cross over, so to speak, into our culture, land in the middle of us, And while being and remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He he lived and died as a human and as sinless God. As such, Paul then could say to Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. You may be saying, so what, Todd? I'm going home in a little bit and I'll have three screaming toddlers in front of my face. I won't think at all about the incarnation. So what, Todd? I go to work tomorrow morning. and My boss will be pressuring me. The minute I arrive on site. We're behind schedule. I won't think much about the incarnation he won't ask me about that it's about spreadsheets and budgets and deadlines say so what Todd I'm a widower or a widow I've been living alone now for six months three years I don't think a whole lot about the incarnation I'm just revisiting the gravesite in my mind every day You say, so what, Todd? My child's wayward. They're straying. They said they don't even believe anymore. And the last thing they're wondering about is was Jesus real? They're off partying like he's not. You say, so what, Todd? Does this really make any difference? Thanks for the $10 words. The beliefs that I had never heard of, but no, I shouldn't believe. And the nuggets of truth that I should plant my feet in, but not surely what they mean sometimes. Appreciate that, but so what? I'm headed off into a world in a few minutes that wants to eat me alive. What difference does this really make? I'm really glad you asked that. Because you're thinking it. I think that. In closing, let me share with you three, watch this, everyday implications that are guaranteed all because of the incarnation. You see, I want you to take the incarnation and I want you to get it out of December. That's where where it lives for most of you. Oh, it's Christmas. God came to us. Let's sing a little bit. Let's light some candles. That's a Christmas doctrine. No, no. It's an everyday doctrine. Let me show you how. First of all, Christ's sympathy for believers rests on the incarnation. Did you know that? Had he not come in a body, had the word, the logos, not been flesh, he would not have experientially be able to say, as the writer of Hebrews says, that he knows what it's like to be human in every single way. So to the boss or the employee, To the widow or the widower. To the single. To the married person. To the one in relational trouble. To to the one who feels lonely, betrayed. Name your situation. Guess what? Jesus knows. How, Todd? Because he was once a human being with real flesh and blood who experienced the weight of temptation. The agony of betrayal, hunger, thirst, emotion, Jesus knows. The writer of Hebrews says that, in, that as our great high priest, he in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's how this doctrine affects you every day. Tomorrow, this evening, when you're like, man, does anybody understand? When you get the phone call, the bad news, the email, the text with... Things you didn't want to hear. Who can listen to the who understand? Here's the best listener, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has walked in your shoes. Every man, every woman, Jesus knows. So this is why Peter would say to us: cast all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. And there have been times in my life, and some of you have times way worse than what I've experienced. Times Jules and I have walked through together, there's been, there's been moments you're like that, there's no one we can talk to about this. No one would understand. But you know what? There is one person who knows Jesus. And it's the incarnation that enables his sympathy to be the best of all. Amen. He sympathizes with us that rest on the incarnation. That's everyday doctrine, church. Amen. Christ's redemption of believers relies on the incarnation. You see, God, in his framework and his character, was not able, and I say able, he would not allow himself just to wave a wand and say, oh, you know what? I've got those sinful pagans down there. They've separated from me. They've, they've been uh, straying in their own sin. They're lost. I'll just kind of wipe the slate clean. We'll just kind of call it good. Why could God not do that? Why would God's character not allow that avenue? Because God from the beginning had called for a blood sacrifice, even from the garden forward. And so the law set up that framework, a blood sacrifice. And for years, for centuries, animals were required. They lasted about a year, right? The day of atonement. But in God's gracious, sovereign wisdom, he sent the perfect lamb, who for 33 years lived among us in an actual body, And died an actual death. And because Jesus Christ, now watch this church, was the offerer. He was our high priest who sympathizes. But he's also the offering. He's the actual lamb of God upon the altar. Because he did that physically, bodily. God now looks at that blood sacrifice and he says, For all who believe, I'm satisfied forever. That doesn't happen if there's not a physical sacrifice of a lamb. So when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, something magnanimous is happening. Christ in flesh has come on the scene to redeem mankind. How did he do it? In a physical body, on a physical cross, as a physical offering to God. Man, thank God for the incarnation. Your redemption relies on it. It's not imaginary or fictitious. It's not mythical. It's physical. Supernatural, yes, but not mystical. And it's in time and space and evidential. And because it is exactly that, God can look upon us as righteous. Man, thank God the Word was made flesh. Lastly, Christ's mission for the church, it's rooted in the incarnation. I maybe assume this too much, but our Deliberate desire to be very intentional and strategic to reach the nations. Maybe I should say to do our part to reach the nations is rooted in the incarnation because God crossed incredible barriers to save your soul. I mean, you just need to think about that for a while. We were separated We were unholy. We were lost without strength. We were sinning, Romans says. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God sent Jesus into a culture that was not like his own. It's not heaven on earth yet. Quite frankly, it was and still is at times hell on earth. And it was into that very environment that God said, I'll send the second person of the Trinity and he'll become one of them and he'll understand everything it means yet without sin and then he'll give his life as a ransom because I want them to know and I want my followers to know that's how we reach people. We go into their cultures. So do you wonder why the Achan's are moving to Indonesia the Sizzix uh, to, to their part of the world. You wonder why we send people why we train people you know, why you plant churches. Because our God is a missionary God. We're not looking for hobbies, people. We're not wondering where to spend money. We're actually trying to keep our expenses limited. We're holding down certain items. Why? So we can put more money, as much as possible, into the sending of people, locally and globally, to do what God did with us. He came to us. And if you lack a missionary heart, you have yet to understand the gospel. The gospel is rooted in the incarnation of Christ. It's God's mission deployed. God coming to us. So when your comforts, when your cultural conveniences stop you from crossing a barrier to reach someone, you're not displaying the heart of God. Now, we all wrestle with that. Right? Can you nod your head? Yeah, I wrestled with that. I wrestled with that last night. I wrestle. I would say, three three or four times a year with, you know, should we consider life somewhere else? Maybe a mission somewhere. I think about that a lot. I have a deep, deep passion for groups who've never heard, but I feel like God right now is using me to mobilize this body in ways that it's really, it's right where I need to be. So I'm very content. But I think about that three times a year. What I think about every day is this. How can I get into the world of my neighbor's? That's what I think about every day with great conviction. I'm just not in their world. Proof positive, last night we were on the patio, Julie and I were swinging on this like you know, patio swing, and there's a party nearby. I won't tell you all the details, except it, we could hear it. And at first we began to comment like, oh man, what's that going to be like when they're teenagers? And these were little kids, you know. And then, and then in that conversation, I just remember... I uh, feel a lot of conviction, like, uh, you know. What would, I said to Julie, I said, what would it take to get invited to that party? And she kind of caught the hint, and she goes, I don't know. You're pretty weird, you know. <laughs> what she means is, you, you wouldn't fit over there. And I said, I know, you don't fit either, honey. And then we just admitted to each other, we don't fit in those circles. But our hearts were breaking, I'll be honest with you. We just looked at each other and kind of, we, we kind of knew, you ever them your spouse, you kind of, you sense like, man, I know what they're feeling. And we both were like, we're just not in that world enough. And we don't long for those things. We long for those people to be saved. We do. They live near us. I was so convicted that I'm not really going to worry about moving to Egypt for a while. You're good to hear that, aren't you, honey? You're glad about that, right? (laughs) I'll send all I can. I just like to know how to get in the world of my neighbor's. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, am I the only guy rowing that boat? Do you ever feel that way sometimes, like you just don't really fit? Yeah, can I say something to you? God didn't fit here either in some ways. Holy, righteous God, becoming flesh among us, confining all of His glory in some ways into this little bitty baby's body and then it grows and then we see God's glory on display in a human form but we can't imagine that's really God because he looks so normal. All of this happening. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Church, if that is how God operates, why would his ambassadors operate with any less passion? So will you row a boat with me? What culture? What barrier? What hurdle will you cross to display the heart of your missionary God of the Logos who was made flesh for your sakes? See, that's an everyday doctrine, isn't it? I'll see those people today. And you know what I I will rely on? To motivate me to figure out how to get invited to that party. (laughs) It's not anyone's pat on the back. It's not a blog or a song or a moment or an experience. It's a doctrine. The doctrine of the incarnation. What makes me commit to sending people, to mobilizing this church? It's not what's popular or cool. It's not what some famous preacher says we ought to do. I could care less about that. I want to know one thing what's it going to take to mirror the heart of God to this globe? And that is the incarnational mission of the church to make disciples of all nations. That's everyday doctrine. When you're wondering, who's listening? Who cares? It's the incarnation that leans in and says, Jesus knows. He cares. When you're wondering, is salvation real? Is this an honest, genuine thing? Yes, because Jesus died in real time and space, a real body on a real cross. Jesus Christ sympathizes. Jesus Christ saves. And Jesus Christ sins. Those are guarantees of the incarnation. So why do we believe it? That's precisely why. That's the answer to your so what question. So yes, enjoy the class time. Root your feet deep in doctrine. But when you leave today, you're not leaving with a blank of information that doesn't matter. You're leaving with doctrine that should matter every single day. Amen? Let's pray.